Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Bad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, available at all your finest retailers. Now, between the two of us, we have over 50 years of homebrewing experience, I think. Now, maybe. <laughs> Darn close. Yeah. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. And on today's episode, we're going to be catching up on some of the beer news before we get into brewing, because, well, it's festival slash conference season slash good lord who knows what else is going on season. So a lot of brewing, a lot of things to talk about. So let's do it! All right, but before any of that, please take a listen to this message. This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Hey there, we're going to start off with some announcements, and Drew's got number one. Yep, if you didn't pay attention, go back and listen to last week's Brew Files which was me taking a segment out of the Maltos Falcons Happy Hour, where I talked to Vinny about Russian Rivers Plenty the Elder. And, by the way, Denny, did you enjoy your Happy Hour experience? Uh, I, I enjoyed it a lot, man. I had a great time. And uh, Plenty is a very good beer, but it's, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's been equaled by a lot of other beers these days. But, man, let me tell you, that Yanami, whoa. Yeah, well, we'll get to that in a second. Yeah. <laughs> And we also want to remind you that AHA HomebrewCon is coming up June 22nd through 24th in San Diego at the Town & Country Resort, a place I absolutely love. Uh, we're going to be doing a seminar on modern hopping techniques in West Coast IPA, how to take some of the things that have been discovered the last few years and uh, maybe used for hazies and apply them to a nice, crisp, clear West Coast IPA. So uh, if you're there, please... Please come and hear us. We're also going to be serving a special beer that kind of exemplifies some of these ideas. Kelsey McNair at North Park Brewing is brewing this beer for it. And it'll be at various booths around the conference. So if you're there, look for it. I wish I could tell you what it's called, but we don't know yet. Yeah, we've talked a lot about it so far, but we haven't actually settled on the yeah, name. Yeah, that's right. We spent hours and hours discussing this beer and what's going to be in it and what it's going to be like. We haven't even talked about what to call it. Yeah, I was going to say, I think we've spent more time arguing about crystal malt than uh, than a name. We didn't argue. (laughs) Discussed. Yes, we discussed. (laughs) But yeah, I love Kelsey, and you can expect a lot more content coming about that IPA, uh, because it's going to be brewed coming up here, well, relatively shortly, so guess where I'm going to (laughs) be. I can guess. I was going to be there, but uh, I'm not going to make it. There you go. All right, now don't forget... You can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA or BYO links on the website and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which is... It's called Best Friends. It's an organization whose goal is to make sure that uh, no pet dies in a shelter. Uh, they take animals that are in shelters where they could very likely be euthanized, and they work on getting them fostered, adopted, or moved to other shelters. Great cause, great organization. So uh, go to experimentalbrew.com, click on the Patreon link there, throw us a few bucks that we can pass along to them. Yeah, Sammy, the obnoxious 18-and-a-half-year-old chihuahua who's snoring behind me right now was rescued out of a shelter. And all of them should be. Hey, bud. Ah. <laughs> What'd you say? He just looked at me and said, stop talking, old man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. Now, since that's, you know, the, the word from the Chihuahua side of the fence, I think it's now time for us to take the word of what's going on in the pub. All right. We're going to head over to the pub, have a couple beers, and we'll meet you there right after these messages. 
This spring, Y-Yeast is featuring two yeast strains that have revolutionized craft brewing. 1056 American Ale and 1318 London Ale 3. These legendary strains have shaped many beers over the decades. And the king of craft beer itself, the IPA. From iconic American IPAs to New England styles, these brewmaster's favorites are available year-round in the Activator Smack Pack system for your next brew day. Our featured strains are complemented with a limited release of 1217 PC West Coast IPA, a yeast with balanced neutral character and a good flocculation, and 2575 PC Kolsch 2 for brewing a German IPA or keeping it traditional with a rich profile and soft malt finish for Kolsch. Available now through June. Head over to yeastlab.com for our latest brewing advice and more info on this spring's legacy curation. Let's get brewing. The next generation of countertop home distillation systems is here. The all-new Airstill Pro from Still Spirits is a revolutionary still that will look right at home alongside your everyday kitchen appliances. This small-batch 2-in-1 distillation system operates in either pot still or reflex mode and allows you to craft high-quality light and dark spirits at home. No hoses, no complicated assembly, just plug and play. The Airstill Pro column cools itself with a built-in high-powered fan. The Still Spirits Airstill Pro is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer. Learn more about the Airstill Pro at stillspirits.com or check them out on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Welcome to the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere, somewhere out in cyberspace. We're having a couple beers, and we're going to tell you about them, and you may not be able to get them anyway. <laughs> you might not, but oh, if you can, yeah, you should. It, it struck me this morning that a lot of the beers we talk about are going to be pretty limited, so I'm really sorry to entice everybody out there with beers you can't actually have. Well, yeah, but in the case of the beer I'm going to talk about, I want to entice people because Damn it, it should be brewed more often. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, as we alluded to in the opener, Denny joined me for the Maltos Falcons' third anniversary of the happy hours. That's right, we've been doing it for three dang years. Um, this was happy hour number 92, I think. And we went to Russian River and had Russian River mail us beer, and I mailed Denny a pack. And yeah. I'm trying to remember, what, what do we have in the pack? We had the Russian River Porter. Right. Uh, we had the Yanami, which is what we'll talk about here. Uh, Damnation, which is a fantastic beer. Damn good. And, of course, Plenty of the Elder, the the beer that launched a 1,000 double IPAs. Right. Although and, Vinny kept calling it Pliny. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I kept waiting for you to correct him. Oh, I did. Multiple times. <laughs> I, I can't help it. Every time, after every, I left. every time Vinny and I talk about that beer, I can't help it. Because I'm I'm an old Latin nerd, and so hearing, hearing uh, Pliny... As opposed to plenty, always just kind of goes. Okay, um, but anyway, 
enough about that. Let's talk about the beer I want to talk about, which was that Yanami. Yeah. So, uh, three times a year, Vinny wants to brew it four times a year, but the demand isn't quite there yet. Three times a year, Vinny brews a Saison called Robert. And when it goes into packaging, half the beer gets split off and is hit with Britannomyces, a particular blend of Britannomyces that's unique to him, captured from local wineries up there in Sonoma. And the best way I can think to describe this beer is it's an American-made Orval by people who give a damn about Orval. Yeah, except, you know what, man? It didn't have any of that. I didn't get any of the, the Brett funk out of it. it it's uh, like a young Orval. Yeah, but which is funny because, I mean, it was like a, a nine-month-old bottle, I think, were the ones that we yeah, had. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And, I mean, it's it's a much softer Brett profile to it, but it's definitely there. And holy cow. I mean, yeah. this, this is one of those beers that, you know, I mean... Obviously, you and I, we have a lot of beer over over the months. And, you know, a lot of them are really good beers, but, you know, like a lot of things get lost in sort of a sea of IPAs and all that sort of fun stuff. This is a beer that stands out. It demands oh, yeah. for you to pay attention to it. It is all of those wonderful aspects of an Orval. It's got a nice bright hoppiness to it, a little bit of that noble leafy tannin thing in the background. And then this sort of wonderful cinnamon sandalwood Brett character throughout it. Along with along with something I think we've lost in this day and age of cans, which is a sparkling, obnoxiously so, sparkling effervescence. Uh, I remember, because those are like little 500 milliliter bottles I think he was using. Yeah, I think so. Uh, corked, caged, very old school. And one of those ones where you pop the cork and you know you've you've opened something special because it goes boom. Yeah. And it just popped into that glass with a big old fluffy head. And it is probably one of the best things I've tasted beer-wise, I would say, in the last year. Yeah, I, I agree, man. Me too. I mean, when I poured it into the glass and just took a whiff of the aroma, I was... <laughs> I mean, you know, my eyes kind of rolled because it was so amazing. And then I took a sip and my first, I mean, it's just like, wow, this is amazing. Um, it's not your normal Saison. No, it's definitely not. And, of course, if you listen to me often enough, you know that I'm usually more of a fan of a clean Saison, so a non-breaded Saison, um, which is also the reason why I need to get my hands on Robert so I can compare the two. But in this particular case... Oh, wow. I mean, it was just, it was the right level of bread. It was the right sort of expression. It wasn't, it wasn't so aggressively bread that it lost the Saison yeast characteristics to it. It was, it was just a wonderful melange. If you have the opportunity, and you have to remember, Russian River does not distribute this beer. It's only available at the brewery or through DTC sometimes, so direct to consumer mail. You can go to Russian River's website and you can see what they're shipping at the moment. If you can get your hands on this, holy poop monkeys, do you need to? <laughs> yeah, and again, that's what we were saying about limited distribution. So uh, we kind of apologize for raving about this beer that probably 99.9% of you won't be able to get. But it's a beer worth raving about. Yeah, and, and by the way, part of the reason to rave about it is because I want increased demand for it. So if there's increased <laughs> demand for it. Yeah, then maybe he'll make it more often. By the way, the other thing I thought was interesting, and you would have noticed this in the pack that you got, is this was an incredibly varied pack in terms of packaging. Like, I'm, I'm so used now, like, you know, when we go and we get these packs to do the half hours with, it's four 16-ounce cans. And this was, <laughs> there was one 16-ounce can in this whole pack. Right. And then, like, what, a 500-milliliter crown cap and two 500-milliliter you know, cork and cage bottles? It was like... Wow, this feels old school, but wonderfully right. so. So, <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I like cans, but sometimes the tyranny of the can uh, puts itself on, you know, puts its Im imprint on a style or a beer. Yeah, I mean, cans are not necessarily best for every beer stylistically, but they certainly make it convenient. Yeah. So, again, if you got lost in all that description that we just gave you, that was the Russian River Yonami. Uh, good lord. Well, why don't you spell that for people? Yeah, sorry. Uh, J-A-N-N-A-M-I-E, and I know I'm saying it wrong, but that's, uh, every time I look at it, it uh, my brain 
defaults to French, but it's actually Flemish. So, yeah, I, I think the, the Vinny was calling it Yanami. Yep. But go go and uh, seek that beer out if you can, because you will not be disappointed. No, I don't. I, if you like saisons or Belgian styles at all, this this beer will set you back on your butt. I mean, look, if you like beer, if you like beer that has interesting flavors to it, I can't imagine how you, even if you, even if you're not a saison fan, I don't, I can't imagine how you could have that in front of your face and not go, wow, that's something special. Yeah. Oh, th- that's easy, man. People like different things. Come on. Oh, I know, but you can still recognize that something special. You could put the world's best hazy IPA in front of me, and I probably still wouldn't like it. Well, okay, again, not necessarily like it, but at least recognize its specialness. No? Okay, may- maybe that, yes. All right. And going from Russian <laughs> River to another beer that you that you can't get and that Danny's got to send me so I can have some. I'm having our dankest hour, Dank India Pale Ale from Pelican Brewing up here on the Oregon coast. If someone could read my mind and design a beer for me based on what's in my head, this one would be it. I mean, it... it it is dank, but it is deep. It's got layers of flavor to it. Uh, they say it has notes of pine tree, blackberry, and stone fruit. Uh, the can, it actually says pine resin. And let me tell you, that is the first thing you get when you open this can. It's like you're standing next to a pine tree that's dripping sap or something like that. But then the, the fruit flavors come in, and... This beer, besides using the regular pale malt, also has Munich malt and C60. Yes, I said C60 for all you people who don't believe it belongs in an IPA. That's what gives this beer its depth, is that blend of malts. Uh, there are some darn good IPAs being made out there that are, um, say, all Pilsner malt. That's the San Diego style. But you know what? You, if you taste this beer, there is no way you can say that C60 doesn't belong in an IPA. Uh, again, it, it gives it the depth that the all Pils malt IPAs don't have. Magnum hops, Equinot, Simcoe, and Strata, which uh, I'm sure is uh, responsible for a lot of the dankness. Strata is a very, very dank, intense hop. Um, I just love this beer, and if you love traditional, intense West Coast IPAs, uh, this is one to keep your eyes out for. It's part of their Hopination Migration series uh, of what they call experimental IPAs, 7.5%, 75 IBU. Um, and, you know, it's just it, it's a beer that if you are into traditional, dank West Coast IPA, this beer is for you like it was for me. I'm just wondering what Winston Churchill's uh, response would be, other than it needs more gin. <laughs> he drank beer, too. I just saw a picture of him drinking beer the other day. <laughs> I know, but for me, Churchill, in my mind, is always associated with gin. And probably also whiskey, because I know he liked bourbon. Uh, yeah, there's lots of strange things going on in your mind, so. Yeah, no, my, my brain is a is a battleground. Uh, <laughs> but it, it is good to see, like, I mean... It, this beer sounds like part of what we're talking about in the talk because it does blend some of those old school elements like the C60 in your, your beloved C60 in some ways, um, along with a newfangled hop like Strata. Um, right. and you know, getting that, getting those fruit characters in there that we would never have talked about with an IPA 10 years ago. Well, it would have been citrus fruit, you right. know, as opposed to the, the tropical thing like uh, the, the blackberry candied orange that they're talking about here. Uh, it, it's just an incredibly well thought out beer. And I am in, it's one of those things that uh, Paula was out shopping. She saw it and went, oh, dank. I know what that might just taught her the meaning of dank recently. <laughs> Uh, so she said, okay, this is something I'm going to like. She went home, uh, brought home a six-pack. Next day, I went back to the store and bought four more. How How does your wife, uh, who is an old Oregon hippie, not know Dank? <laughs> uh, she stopped smoking uh, 30 years ago. Oh, well, that does it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Two beers that you might not be able to get your hands on, but damn it, you should try. <laughs> yep, exactly. They're, they're worth looking for if you have a chance. All right. And so into the news from our happiness of, the, of that 
of these beers that we've had to a little bit of an update. You remember the last time that we talked here, we talked that uh, Clay uh, from Jaded was in the hospital uh, and that we didn't really have much of an update about what was going on. They've since opened up a GoFundMe uh, page for him, and we'll include the link in there, and they are updating, and Clay is actually home. Yay! Yeah, but he's going to need, apparently, a whole lot of therapy and recovery. So, please, please, please help him out if you can. Yep. Yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm not much of a fan of the idea of GoFundMes for using for this purpose, but in this particular case, uh, here we are. Yeah, that's right. All right. And then from Clay onto the Hop Glut, what we're starting seeing, we talked a little bit about the uh, Bart Watson and company, uh, Bart Watson from the Brewers Association, talking about the amount of hops that are actually in storage right now, either from uh, contracts that have been oversubscribed to or, you know, sort of over-exuberance of optimism in terms of, you know, what needs to be planted. We definitely have a hop glut. I'm starting to see some speculation that was coming out saying that uh, this year we're going to see a reduction in crop acreage, right? That's not a surprise. This happens all the time. Uh, but what really surprised me was that they were talking about a 20 to 30% decrease in acreage for Citra and Mosaic, which are sort of the two biggest planted hop crops in terms of craft hops, um, just because there's way too much back, uh, backroom supply that's still archived and being kept in cold storage. So 20 to 30% of Citra and Mosaic will be coming out of the fields, it looks like. So what does that mean for us as craft beer lovers and homebrewers? It means that quite possibly, at least for a little while, some of those hops like Citra and Mosaic are going to become cheaper, uh, only expecting a couple of years for that to rebound and, and spike up again when people don't know what the, the band is. I think maybe you're baselessly optimistic, man. Uh, I, have, I haven't seen any sign of them getting cheaper. And uh, when I read about this whole thing, people were saying that doesn't mean they're going to be getting any cheaper. But we'll, we'll see. Except for if the, crop is, if the crops are sitting there in the warehouse, i got to get them moved. So, yeah, but the, the big thing that's going to end up happening, though, is what always happens is if you ever watch the hop, the hop cycles forever in a day, since they can only plant on what they can predict that they, they need, particularly contracted, uh, you know, there's always this sort of nice, like, dip and then spike in a couple of years, and that's why I suspect we'll see again. So, yeah, it happens over and over, huh? It does. Well, I mean, and, but you stop me and think about it. I mean, that's part of the reason why the cooperatives like Yakima Chief came into being was they came into being to try and kind of help combat some of that and try and, and put a little bit more of a structure around the market and keep keep it from being sort of feast or famine. Uh, but, you know, it's not always going to be... Even when you have controls, they don't always work perfectly. Keep an eye out for what's going to happen with your Citra Mosaic. Uh, be curious. We get, I think, what the USDA crop reports come out in June or July. So we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens there. <laughs> Every time I hear the words crop reports, all I can think of is trading places. places. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. How's, yep. it, how's it hanging, Billy Ray? <laughs> all right. Uh, from the hops into beer styles. So Jeff Allworth over at Birvana wrote a interesting article about the pursuit of beer styles and said, did the pursuit of styles lead us down a blind alley? And if you go and you read the article, it's a lot about like, okay, you know, where do styles come from? You know, why have they become a thing? You know, do they, do they sort of tie us down? Do they, do they set expectations in the wrong way? Are they helpful at all? Or are we kind of being dumb? Um, and what I thought was interesting is it's, it's the classic debate. Every time you have anything that is about a taxonomy, so categorization, breeds, hops, you know, beer styles, the, inevitably, this taxonomy gets into a weird state, and I think probably one of the best responses I saw to it was from Josh Weikert, who said his problem right now with, with the way beer styles are is not that we have these styles and that they tie people down in any way, because let's face it, they don't really. You know, we, we, have a, we have a lot of variability in terms of our styles, um, but his real problem with it is that they don't seem to functionally work anymore in the sense of, you know, if the idea behind a, a beer style is to be uh, descriptive, right? So the classical debate about proscriptive versus descriptive, let's just run on a descriptive world here. If the idea of a beer style is to be descriptive, it means that, you know, when you walk into a place and they say, hey, this is our West Coast Pale Ale, you have a sense of what you're going to get, right? Right. The Josh's argument, one I would actually agree with, is that these days, at least in terms of pale, pale ales and IPAs, that system's completely broken. It's no longer descriptive. 
like because now you go and you get a West Coast IPA and you know something that's being billed as a West Coast IPA and it comes out as a hazy thing and it's like this doesn't help me anymore. I don't know if I go into a place and I see an IPA, I don't know what that means anymore. And, right. And I'm old man. I'm shaking my fist at the at the boards, going ah. <laughs> so, to me, that's kind of an interesting response to it because I agree. I don't mind styles because styles are always sort of a weird thing anyway, and they don't they capture both what the market is doing, but the market is also trying to do things that don't necessarily fit what the styles are saying. Cause the people who are describing the styles are not the people who are trying to sell the beer. Um, but what I really don't like is I don't like the fact that in a lot of ways, a style name doesn't really have a lot of meaning anymore or necessarily a lot of tie back to reality. It's no longer, it's, it's no longer either descriptive or prescriptive. It's yeah, just a bunch of words. exactly. Yep, so yep, yep. that's, that's my problem with how beer styles are today is that, and, that, and that's also part of the reason why, like, for instance, I don't mind when somebody comes up with a moniker like Cold IPA, like we've been talking about, um, because at least it kind of gives me some set expectations as to what's what's going to be in my glass, um, even if they're dangerously close to somebody else's or some some other set of specifications. Uh, I just don't like it when a term becomes so generic that you can't tell what the hell's going on with it. Yeah, um, I, I agree, man. Um it, it, it can get confusing, and it really should be a way to describe things, like like you said. Um, you know, if I see something described as a particular style, that's what I'm going to expect it to be. And I'm I'm getting tired of every time I order an IPA having to ask if it's hazy. Yeah. Well, and I don't even like. I think it's funny. A couple of years ago, when we did that episode with uh, Radiant Brewing about their Black Kolsch. Yeah, and you know, got a lot of response from people like, ah, rah, 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 right? Which you're going to. <laughs> um, I totally get it, but at the same time, I thought it was funny because at least by calling it a black Kolsch, they they set you up for the expectation of confounding. Well, yeah, they they at least describe the beer. Uh, cold IPA is not descriptive in any way. Eh. We can go around and around about that, but again, I I'm just I'm with you on the fact like. Uh, can you at least tell me if it's clear IPA or, or a hazy IPA? Yeah. <laughs> well, here, man, now, since we're talking about this, how is cold IPA descriptive? Have you ever had a hot IPA? Well, no, but cold IPA sets my expectations in terms of what I know about the process, right? Well, sure, but if you're if you're a consumer walking into a bar, mm-hmm. and, and, and let's let's take us out of this, right? Because mm-hmm. we we live and breathe this stuff. If you're the average Joe consumer or Josie consumer walking into a bar, and you see something called a cold IPA, you go, "What the heck?" Is that are the other IPAs not cold? <laughs> you know, do they do they refrigerate this one as opposed to the other ones? Oh yeah, um, you know it, it it does nothing. Well, except for until you start until you start to understand the process. You're right to the average consumer; it's not going to be. But then again, to the average consumer, the difference between Kolsch and Pilsner means nothing either. And by the uh, way, yeah, and by the way, Josie is not the preferred nomenclature; it's Jang. Oh, okay. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I, I get it. Uh, But it just, to me, it was interesting because it was like, okay, here we are. (laughs) Um, And again, it goes back to, I don't like breed standards in dogs because I I think it does bad things. And I'm never never a proscriptive person. Uh, But I would at least like my system to be descriptive. So there you go. (laughs) Yep. All right. So from that bit of uh, style nonsense to something that's a little bit more lighthearted, um, the Sioux Falls, South Dakota uh, Police Department has a new dog in service. And I promise you this is beer-related. I know. Uh, Leo. And Leo is serving the department as a therapy dog uh, for victims and for the officers in the, in the department. And I guess uh, they, they're putting the dog through training, but... Uh, because the dog's coming with additional costs, right? Because, of course, you know, dog needs to be paid, at least in kibble uh, and vet bills. Uh, they decided to do a fundraiser, and they're working with a local brewery there in Sioux Falls, Severance Brewing. And they had the dog pick out tennis balls to describe what sort of beer was going to be brewed to raise money for Leo the service dog. And Leo ran around and chose the tennis balls that ended up being a mango sour ale. Leo... 
I'm disappointed in your taste, but I understand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm, happy to, I'm happy that somebody's paying for a service dog. That's good. <laughs> Last bit of beer news here. Uh, there have been more attempts to pinpoint lager brewing. Uh, this kind of goes back into the, the question of history and sometimes does history matter? And will you ever actually be able to answer this question? Because you remember in the past couple of years, we've gone back and forth about, oh, look, lager yeast was isolated in South America, Patagonia. Uh, how does a Patagonian yeast get over to the to Europe and become the cornerstone of lager brewing? And then, oh, wait, it's got Irish roots and all this sort of stuff. Like, look, DNA analysis is, is awesome, but I think it's also throwing a lot of, like, ripples of confusion into things, uh, which I'm okay with because confusion's fun sometimes. Uh, but this particular bit of research was uh, them trying to lock down a little bit more about like how lager first develops in uh, Bavaria. So remember, ale, what ale strains are Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Lager strain is uh, Saccharomyces pasteurianus, and the the sort of root of that pasteurianus is a cold loving yeast uh, Eubianus. Uh, no, I'm not saying any of that right. Um, <laughs> and so the real uh, the real question is, okay, so how did Saccharomyces cerevisiae get hybridized with the Eubianus to become Pasteuranus? And a lot of like speculation, oh, you know, somehow Eubianus got into a cold fermentation that was happening in an ale brewery, and then that ended up you know hybridizing there. This particular research that uh, is coming out of uh, the FIMS Yeast Research Journal. Uh, actually says that that's the wrong way around and what they think actually happened from looking at the historical records and looking at the genetic phenotypes and all that sort of fun stuff is that they believe that lager, lager strains, eubiana strains were already being used in Munich in the 1600s, early 1600s. And what actually ended up happening was when the Duke of Bavaria passed away without an heir and somebody else seized it, they also seized control of the royal permit for wheat beer brewing and they brought that back to Munich right and said basically no that's going to be a royal thing now it's in the royal court and that the introduction of the wheat beer yeast actually hybridized with already native Eubionis that was being used to make Munich beer and that's why we get the hybridization into modern lager strains and then because of Munich technical brewing prowess and sort of an openness to sharing that's how that Pasteuranus gets spread across the world and lager beer becomes what it is today. So they're looking at it and trying to figure out from the brewing records and the genetics that they can see, like the order of operations about how all this happens. And this is the, the, the speculative theory that's being pushed forward in this paper. That's in uh, the FEMS research journal. I thought it was interesting. I, again, it's one of those things of, I don't know how the hell you can actually answer that question. <laughs> yeah, I, I would agree with that, man. It, it seems like there's just no way to ever know for sure. No, but it's at least fun to see people are trying and, and interesting to read the, the methodologies and to think somebody's, somebody's out there trolling through Central European brewing archives and uh, archaic German, probably, you know, to figure that out. <laughs> really? really? Oh, I love that sort of thing. But in the meanwhile, it's beer o'clock. Yes, it is. We're going to be heading over to the brewery now, and Drew's been brewing up a storm, so he's going to tell you all about it. Stick around. The ultimate all-in-one electric homebrewing system is here. The new Grainfather G40 can produce up to 11 gallons of beer and features all the latest advancements in homebrewing technology, including wireless control so you can monitor your brew day from the Grainfather app. With an innovative new grain basket design that improves workflow, reaching mash efficiencies of 75% or more is easy. The 3300-watt heating element brings your wort to a boil quickly without any scorching, and the large hop plate filter guarantees that no unwanted grain matter or hop tube reaches your fermenter. Every G40 comes standard with a high-powered built-in pump that can handle temperatures over 200 degrees Fahrenheit and a full three-year warranty that guarantees that you will be able to keep on brewing no matter what. The new Grainfather G40 is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer or online at grainfather.com. Done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. 
With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. We've moved over to the brewery, and I'll just let Drew talk for a while. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So first things first, malt. uh, um, You know, we keep talking about how much malt is the backbone of good beer, right? And I thought this was interesting. This popped up on my, my feeds. It's a study that was trying to attempt to isolate what exactly makes good malt good. Now, that's a hell of a question, isn't it? Um, and it's a paper that did a study. It was uh, kind of a co-opted paper between a couple of uh, breweries, and it was basically did a comparison of Maris Otter, Australian malts, uh, including uh, sort of the famous schooner malt, uh, Canadian-grown malt that was then processed and malted in in China. I didn't know that happened. Did you? <laughs> well, yes. I didn't know that they were taking barley from Canada and, and malting it in China. So I was kind of surprised yeah, about I, that. Yeah, I, I had heard that. Yeah, and then, of course, uh, Chinese malt as well. So no ger- uh, no German malts in here and relatively little in the way of UK malts and all that sort of fun stuff. Uh, and they were trying to draw out what was sort of the difference, what was causing the differences in the perceptions uh, from what people were tasting. I thought one of the funny things was in the very start of the paper they talked about, like, well, you know, in the craft beer world, uh, most of the craft beer producers out there are seizing on flavor differences induced by yeast and hops and all that sort of fun stuff, but most of the world drinks lager where subtle differences in base malt can be detected. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, and also Maris Otter is king in the craft beer world. Well, in some ways. Yeah, yeah, it is, kind of. Yep. But... They did a whole bunch of analysis to go and both compare sensory data versus compounds found in the malts and and pH and all that sort of fun stuff. And on the sensory, what I thought was interesting, uh, of course, it's right in line with what they set up in the summary of the page, that Maris Otter came out on top in terms of everybody's sensory preferences and followed closely behind by Schooner, which I've never actually brewed with. Have you ever brewed with Schooner? Uh, No, I don't think I have. I don't think I've ever actually seen it here in the States. Um. Schooner, which is, again, the big Australian malt. And then uh, the Canadian malt, I thought this was great. The, the Canadian malt got a description of corn chip. It tastes like corn <laughs> chips. Doritos beer. Yeah, exactly. Just and, like Russell did. Yeah. <laughs> the, the Cool Ranch. <laughs> yeah. It makes me wonder, did he ever do the seltzer? He must have done. He did do the seltzer. That's right. Um and then the Chinese malt kind of came in last in terms of, like, flavor perceptions. And, by the way, the sensory wasn't in terms of, like, what was the best malt. It was it was flavor perceptions in terms of what was coming from the malt, right? So the Chinese malt had the least sort of perceptible flavor distinct to the malt. Maris Otter had the most, which would make sense. Uh, so, again, interesting. Lots and lots and lots to dig into there. We'll include the link to it in the, in the show notes. Uh, but... If somebody can help me better understand some of the chemistry, I'd appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, I think we both would. Yeah. So, Denny, what did you just brew? Uh, I just brewed a plain old German pills. Uh, I used uh, some of the crisp Hana malt, which I really like. Uh, by the way, I saw a guy on Facebook today who had just bought like four bags of it uh, after hearing us talk about it. So, <laughs> take that, crisp. Yay. That's good malt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, and you know, and I went really traditional on hops, magnum for bittering, uh, finished up at the very end with some uh, Hollytown middle fruit and some Zots. Uh, 
you know, 100% the Hana Pills malt, nothing else in there. Uh, the only thing that uh, was new and different this time was that I used the Nova Lager yeast. Mm-hmm. Everybody's talking about it, so I figured I would uh, check it out. Uh, apparently, one of the characteristics it has is being able to ferment very cleanly uh, up into the upper end of the 60s. I'm Which not you did doing there. that. Yeah. No, I, I, you know, that's fine. If you need to do that and it does it, that's fine. I didn't need to do it, and I wasn't really interested in that. So uh, on their website, uh, on their specs, they say that it ferments to completion in six days at 53 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's what I'm trying. Uh, you know, I set my fermenter at 53, and uh, we'll see how it's going. It took off probably less than 24 hours. Uh, I pitched two packs, no rehydration, no aeration, no starter, none of that silly stuff. And, you know, um, we'll see what happens with it. I'm looking forward to it. Good. Um, on, on the, uh, on the Lollamand website, uh, they say that, I mean, if you, if you look at the spider graph of flavors and stuff, it looks like, uh, it has a fairly decent red apple component. But in talking with people who've used it, nobody seems to have noticed that. So, uh, you yeah, know, we'll see what happens. Hmm. Yeah, I'd be curious. Uh, I, I was just using uh, Diamond Lager, which we've talked about before, and I, sure. I think it's a fantastic yeast. Yeah, um, I have a bunch of that, and I just kind of decided I just want to see what this Nova Lager thing is about. And, and you said that's from Lalaman? Yeah. All right, yeah, and, uh, yeah, <laughs> and and I have seen a lot of people talking about trying to use it for you know doing warmer ferments and and I can you know and the funny part is I can understand wanting to do something with a warmer ferment at the homebrew scale uh, far more than the pressure fermentation thing. Yeah, to me that makes a whole lot more sense. But yep. you know what the heck. But again, but both of them with the same kind of goal. Let's let's produce a lager beer faster, which is not normally my goal in life, but. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm I'm not in a position where I really need to get it to ferment quickly. Uh, you know, I would just rather have it do its thing and it's done when it's done. But uh, apparently I'm not one of the masses. Nope, uh, that would not be the first time you've heard that in your life. <laughs> no, it would not. So you brewed a whole bunch of stuff, huh? Right, and so people remember a couple of episodes back on the brew files, I talked about the brew day I was going to try and do, where I was going to try and cram two beers into one brew day. Or actually, really three beers because one of them was going to be a split batch, um, and the brew on my G30 and my G40 at the same time. Uh, ran into a technical issue with that, which is called, oh yeah, that's right, the grandfather app will only let you connect one controller at a time. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and shockingly, shockingly, I don't have two devices that are capable of running the game grandfather app. Really, that's weird. Well, I, I just recycled a bunch of electronics, so okay. you know, I uh, should have saved my old phone. Um, now, and, uh, by the way, I don't want anybody to walk away with that saying that uh, taking that as a slag on what the grandfather app can do, because I completely recognize the idea of trying to control two simultaneous brews is an edge case, and you know, the value proposition is always how much money do we have to spend in order to make that happen, versus how much is it going to generate for us in terms of value, so I get why it's not there, uh, but it's my bad for not having uh, two devices. Um, now, having said that, actually, uh, I also found at the same time that Brewfather apparently has a way to control, in beta, to control a G30 via Bluetooth from a laptop and do it from the recipe sheet that you put together in Grandfather, or, or in Brewfather. I didn't get a chance to play with it because I couldn't get my, my Mac to connect <laughs> but there you go. But it would give me a way to do that, you know. Although again, the simpler version of that is, hey dummy, have an alternate uh, iPad or or Android phone or something that you can use that you can install the grandfather app on. Uh, so I did split it, split it off across two days, but I still did do the thing where I brewed one batch on the G30 because I had to test a brand new accessory that hopefully will be coming out to people before too long, and then we can actually talk about it. Because uh, Danny, you tested it as well, and I think it's kind of cool. It works well. Yeah, it does. And it should be a game changer for people. Um, and then I did brew the other batch on the G40 and did it as a split batch, but I just did it the next day, or actually a couple days later, because rain. Turns out, rain and electrical brew systems make me nervous. Call me strange. <laughs> um, and so the 
I, I learned because of that. I learned a couple of things about my my setup, my new space. Remembered I had to go get a, a 220 extension cord just to give me a, like a little short leash so I can move the, the grandfather unit into a slightly different position. But otherwise, everything was working really, really well. Uh, I will definitely say that you have to remember to be flexible about your brew day and particularly about how to respond to challenges. Like, for instance, somehow I was talking with somebody at the homebrew shop I was at. And when I went to go get my dark malts, I put it in one bag, and they had apparently got, grabbed some malts and put it in a very similar-looking bag. And I walked out of the store with their malt as opposed to my malt. So I had Uh-oh. to... Yeah. Well, fortunately, it was just the dark malts. So I did a little bit of adjustment. It turns out I still had some Carafa 3 on hand. So that went into the into the recipe. Um, and <laughs> so you had a little bit of a pivot. But remember, <laughs> if you are good, you will pivot. Yeah, you, I mean... That uh, same thing happened to me kind of in, in a way when I forgot to put any hops at all into a Pilsner I brewed once. Yeah, and that, now this just makes me suddenly have Devo on my head. If you're good, you must pivot. <laughs> oh, oh, I love it. <laughs> um, so just to remind people again, what I made was the Michigan Spring uh, Cold Pale Ale, just to tweak Denny a little bit. That's what I used the Diamond Lager in. And that was all Sugar Creek malts. So Sugar Creek Pilsner malt and Sugar Creek corn malt, and then Diamond Lager and a whole raft of Michigan-grown hops that I got sent. Um, and it turns out that, that I just put that into the keg uh, actually yesterday, and somehow I got biotransformation, and it's a hazy pale, uh, hazy cold pale ale. <laughs> I didn't know Diamond Lager was capable of doing biotransformation, particularly when it's been sitting in the fermenter for two weeks cold. Uh, are you sure it was biotransformation? I'm fairly certain it looks like a freaking hazy IPA. Hmm. Um, so <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Uh, but then also at the same time, the other batch I did was the uh, what I ended up calling Talk H. Uh, Talk H Pub Ale and Talk H Saison. Uh, I remember that it was originally supposed to be a mild, but I was a little worried I was going to have the dark character to it. So I'm just calling it a Pub Ale because it's something vaguely Britishy. Um, and if you know what talk H is, then you'll know exactly why I called it that because talk H. Um, but the other thing that also happened was I managed to get a chest freezer. Finally, I've been without a cold box for the past year because when we started redoing the garage, I had to get rid of my big old coffin thing. That was like 24 cubic feet or whatever it was, you know, large enough to store several Jimmy Hoffas. Uh, (laughs) now I just have a chest freezer that's large enough to store one Jimmy Hoffa, um, or four kegs. Um, debating about building a collar into it so I can put some kegs up on the condenser hump, but I may just use that for storage. Um, and then let's see, same time, uh, the reason why I was in that brewing uh, frenzy, as Denny would think, is getting ready, getting things ready for Temecula, which is actually going to be tomorrow, the Southern California Homebrewers Festival. We will be bringing you audio from that, assuming that I'm can actually operate the machinery while at a beer festival. <laughs> yeah, the last time you got audio there, it was uh, interesting. Well, part of it was good. Part of it was interesting. Um, all right, and so th- I'm going to be serving that Talk H Pub Ale and the Talk H Saison, doing the Michigan Spring Cold Pale Ale. And I'm going to be serving a uh, a beer that I actually made two years ago or last year. <sighs> got to go look at my notes. Um, called uh, Freya's Jewels. And it's a version of my Queen's Diamonds Barley Wine, but done with Kvike. And so that's the reason why I think it might be two years old now. Uh, and so it's basically just a, a single malt barley wine, but with the Kvike yeast in it. Uh, and then finally also an aged Tupelo mead. And what I mean by that is actually something very different than what you might think initially. Uh, I actually purposely aged and heated and slightly oxidized the Tupelo honey that I used that over the course of about five years and then used that Tupelo honey to make the mead to get a little bit of that kind of Polishy thing. Uh, have you ever had a Polish mead, Denny? Uh, I might've had one once, but I'm not really certain. So the, the Polish meads have this very strong oxidative tone to them. Very, very strong, uh, sherry raisin, dark sort of coloration, uh, type thing going on it. And so I kind of was trying to pick up some of that without necessarily going full Polish. Um, and so I thought that was kind of interesting to do. I just add some more carbonation to it because I think it does need a little carbonation to it. Also, 
Good lord, talk about expensive. I just saw a posting the other day for a, a 60 pound pail, you know, five gallon pail of, of Tupelo honey. Now, Tupelo honey is probably my favorite honey for mead because it's delightfully rich, caramelly, spicy without having to do anything to it. And the 60 pound pail was like 600 and some odd dollars. Wow. Yeah, and wow. and this this might be the brewer's equivalent of going well, back in my day. A head of lettuce cost ten cents, and you got you know three onions to a to a nickel. Uh, but like back when I first started brewing twenty some odd years ago, uh, a five gallon pail of Tupelo honey was like one hundred eighty dollars with shipping. So <laughs> I would say that that Tupelo has outstripped the 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 rise of inflation. So that might be one of the last times I end up using Tupelo, unfortunately. Really, man? So, anyway, that's what I've been brewing. I hope that you guys were out there brewing and having some fun. Tell me uh, tell me what you all have been making, because we've got HomebrewCon coming up around the corner. I'm hoping I'm going to see some very wonderful products coming from you all. Uh, and, Denny, you'll be getting some of these beers if I don't forget to go and bottle them after we're done talking here. <laughs> just send me a keg. Oh, yeah, I'll just uh, pop that one right in the mail. Uh, although maybe if I had some of those plastic kegs, I could send you a plastic keg. Um, but let us know what you've been brewing. Podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Stick around. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have some Q&A, a quick tip, and something other. With Yakima Chief Hops, it's more than a bag of hops. It's nurturing a healthy planet. Yakima Chief Hops has a deep respect for the land that provides a bountiful harvest each year, and they take pride in being advocates of a sustainable, healthy planet. With every hop purchase, you help to support environmental stewardship efforts, such as 134,500 square feet of solar panels, a CO2 recovery system reducing greenhouse gas emissions by more than 50%, and impactful nonprofit partnerships. Sustainability is a journey, not a destination. There is still more work to be done. Follow the journey of Yakima Chief Hops in their annual Corporate Social Responsibility Report at yakimachief.com slash CSR. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. Up your IPA game with homebrewing techniques, craft beer clone recipes, and a free book from the American Homebrewers Association. Push your brews to the limits with Brewing Eclectic IPA by Dick Cantwell. Or dive into the science and history with IPA, brewing techniques, recipes, and the evolution of India Pale Ale by Mitch Steele. Join for one year and receive your choice from 60 different brewing books. Head to homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental for offer details. That's homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental. Welcome back. It's time to wrap this baby up and get out of here. And we're going to start off with some questions and answers. Uh, the first one comes in via email from Bill Hammond. Bill says, due to miscommunication, I realized that only 10% of the priming sugar was in the solution. Can I add more sugar to the bottles after two weeks? That's a, What do you say? <laughs> first thing I say is that's a hell of a miscommunication. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, and uh, so 10% is definitely going to leave the beer a little flat. Um, so definitely got to fix that. Um, and unfortunately, I mean, that's there's no easy way to fix it, right? No, there isn't. There really isn't. So you, really what you got to do is you got to get the beer cold. Uh, one, by the way, this all assumes that you had viable, healthy yeast going into the bottling. So right. you know, if you didn't do that, you're really behind the eight ball. Uh, but if you did, 
use it in for a bunch of work. So get the beer nice and cold. Um, just to hold on to any carbonation that's there. Although I'd probably actually still just redose with the same level of priming sugar and take the extra little bit of carbonation if you get it. Um, yeah, right. And so you could either use carbonation tabs, which I've never had any great luck with. I don't. Uh, agreed. Agreed. I know a lot of people use them, but I just can never get it to work well for yeah. me. Or make a simple syrup, just like you would normally do uh, if you're trying to boil your sugar before you actually add it to the beer. Although I would actually use less water. Uh, just to avoid doing any additional dilution. You know what, man? I always use as little water as I can possibly use to get the sugar to dissolve. I'm, I hear people declaring, you know, oh, you use a cup of water. It doesn't really matter. You mm-hmm. know, get that sugar dissolved. I just kind of start adding it until the sugar is dissolved. And when it's dissolved, I quit. And yeah. well, very it, often it's like maybe half a cup or so. Well, I was going to say, I think a lot of people end up doing, well, a lot of people probably ought to do one to one. Right, which is uh, you know sort of your classic simple syrup sort of ratio, which gets right. you a nice flowable product that isn't you know goopy, but also isn't watery, um, right. and it also dissolves very easily. Is part of the reason to use right. something around that. Um, now, the other thing you'll need if you're going to do the simple syrup sort of route is make sure you have some sort of trusty measuring device, uh, so a nice syringe that you can trust, and then yeah, just calculate how much you need and. Squirt it into the bottles and be very quick about it and be very gentle about the squirting. Um, <laughs> yeah. So really chill, sanitize the bottles, you know, decap it, dose it real quick, uh, recap, and then uh, set it aside and uh, pray. And that, that, that would be my, uh, my, my take on it and hope that you're in the right phase of the moon. Yeah, I, I agree, man. I think that's probably about all you can really do with it. Um, and praying is probably not a bad idea. Yeah, yeah. Light, light some prayer incense. Take a, a <laughs> you know, take a, a, a page out of my book. Um, all right, our next question came from listener Brad Graham, who said, uh, "My wife and I are going to vacation to the Seattle area to do the national parks up there, but we'll have some time in Seattle." I know you guys aren't from Seattle, but you're a lot closer to me <laughs> to it than I am. Uh, Bill's from Orlando, my hometown. Uh, but I was wondering if you are familiar with or have any recommendations of breweries to hit in that area. And so, of course, we reached out to our Seattle correspondent, one Miss Annie Johnson, and asked her. And she said, Georgetown Stoop, Cloudburst, Rubens Brews, a bale breaker, if you love hops. And it's also paired with a cider house and Fremont. So expert advice from a local. I would also throw in uh, our good buddy over at Postdoc. Uh, go, go see him because he makes some really good beers there, too. Uh, but, of course, if you have any other suggestions for Brad, you can drop us a line and we'll make sure he gets them. Yep. Uh, there's so many up there, we couldn't possibly hit them all. So um, I think that Annie, who lives up there, has some great suggestions. Yep. And our final bit, and this is very local and very weird, and it's another beer that nobody else can get, uh, which actually is the reason why the question came in. Uh, Alan actually texted us. Remember, you can always test it. Remember, you can always text us at 626-765-1AL, 626-765-1AL. And Alan had wrote in, he said, any chance you'd be able to help me with a Craftsman Cabernet recipe? I don't know if they still make it, but I didn't get far with email or phone calls years ago. Cheers. All right, so some backstory here. Craftsman is Pasadena's oldest brewing company. It was founded in 1996. It is run by the delightfully grumpy and cranky and weird Mark <laughs> Jilg. Uh, he opened well before anybody was allowed to have a craft beer tap room. And his little industrial park that he's in doesn't really make it easy for him to have a tap room. And even if it did make it easy for him, he would never have a tap room. He doesn't want a tap room. He doesn't like people. He wants to play around with brewing equipment. <laughs> I love this guy. Yeah. And Mark, over the years, has made a number of fantastic beers. The mainstay for the company is the 1903 Pre-Prohibition Lager. But over the years, he's had things out there like his Orange Grove Pale Ale that uses full oranges turned into a slurry, pith and all. Uh, his Triple White Sage that uses sage harvested from the, the, <laughs> the foothills of the National Forest just above us. Uh, you know, lots of different things. And the Cabernet that Alan was asking about is this sort of weird, delightful grape beer wine hybrid thing that he's been making for at least two decades. And it is still being made. Um, grapes change from year to year. The exact, 
makeup of everything changes from year to year because, again, Mark is Mark. Um, and so I reached out and I asked the brewery, I said, okay, tell me, how do you make this uh, grape beer wine hybrid? And it comes in usually around 8.5%, but again, since they're dealing with grapes, it can vary. Uh, and the grape varieties are not necessarily set, even though you would expect that it would be some sort of Cabernet in there with that name. Um, and so what they said was make a basic base beer with about 85% Turo and 15% Munich or wheat, depending upon what sort of color you want out of the thing or what sort of flavor preference you have out of the thing. Bitter to around 20 IBUs, use a neutral ale yeast for primary, and then add the grapes with four pounds per gallon of crushed, destemmed, and sulfited grapes and have the pH adjusted to 3.75, ferment for 10 days, and then blend and age in neutral oak. Now, I didn't. they didn't tell me how long to age neutral oak. They didn't tell me a lot of details. They play it close to the vest, but that's more details than I think Alan started with. So there you go, Alan. Um, the Craftsman Cabernet, how to make that. Again, I know recently we've had a lot of talk about the Italian grape ale, right? Yeah, that's the, what came to my mind for sure. Yeah, and so Mark's been doing uh, Italian grape ale for two decades uh, here in uh, sunny Southern California, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but it is a, a wonderfully delightful beer. Uh, the other thing that also just came out from Craftsman, if you're in the area, is the Craftsman Smoked Black Lager. And again, Craftsman is weird. No bottles, no cans, draft only. I don't want customers. This seems to be Mark's thing. Uh, but he makes a smoked black lager every year, and it is wunderbar if you like smoked beers. Because it's not even that smoky, but it's just tasty. Wow. So, and see, I, I could use a, I could go with a smoked beer that only has just a hair of smoke to it. It has more than a hair of smoke, but it, but it's it's not Shinklara, or, or however you say it. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not a full on Roush beer, Roush beer, but it's a tasty beer with smoke. Uh, Craftsman is one of my, is one of my favorites and not just because they're in the area, but just because again, Mark is a wonderfully weird, cranky old dude. <laughs> and, and Lord knows we need more of those. <laughs> well, I'm doing my best, man. You're doing it. I'm getting there. <laughs> yeah, you are. Okay, so Drew has a quick tip now, and something tells me this may have come from experience. Yeah, just did. Uh, so you all know I like to use aluminum foil in the brewery. Aluminum foil is a homebrewer's duct tape. I also, unlike Denny, I like to sanitize my aluminum foil because I'm weird and paranoid. Um, <laughs> he does lots of unnecessary things. Of course. But I will also say that sometimes I got lazy and forgot to do something, and that was very dumb on my part. And that is, you know, I had one of my fermenters sanitizing with uh, SantiClaim when I realized I wasn't going to be able to do all the, be- the batches of beer in one day. And I had some aluminum foil just hanging out in the SantiClaim in the, in the fermenter. Went, oh, okay, well, poop, finished what I was doing and forgot to fish stuff out of the sanitizer. Came back two days later to go prepared the fermenter for for the next beer, poured out the Santa Clean, and I looked at the I looked at the side of the fermenter and I was like, This is weird. My fermenter looks dirty. I know this thing was perfectly clean the, uh, the other day when I was finished with it. Some was sanitizer in it. And I went and wiped it down and I realized what had happened was I'd gotten aluminum oxide all along the, the insides of the, oh, the oh. fermenter because of the Santa Clean. Uh, and so pulled out all the Santa Clean, wiped that thing down, gave it another cleaning Wiped it down again. By the way, always make sure, you know, one of the joys of having a big open top uh, fermenter is that you can get in there and wipe things down. Uh, wiped it down until everything came off clean and no gray, and then re-sanitized, and life moved on. So, again, don't leave your aluminum foil in an acidic solution. We know this, but sometimes we're still a dummy. And let me just remind you, this also applies to people using aluminum kettles. Uh, don't put star sand in them. Anything acidic, that's the reason why they always used to yell at you about doing tomato sauce in an aluminum pot. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yep. All right. And now for something other than beer, I'm going to give you a book. It's a history book. It's from the 1980s. Go read it. It's good for your brain. Uh, and it's called uh, Rebels and Redcoats by George Shearer and Hugh Rankin. And it is a dense collection. When I say dense, it's like 506 pages. 
of, oh. of firsthand accounts from the American Revolution, both sides. Uh, so not not just focusing on the rebels, but also on the the Tories, uh, and you know showing what people were thinking, what they were feeling, and uh, they're both. People well known, so like Paul Revere, for instance, is in the book, but also mostly people not very well known. Uh, and my namesake ancestor is actually mentioned very briefly in the book, uh, mostly because <laughs> that's why you like it. Oh no, no, he, he gets a one-page mention. Uh, but uh, <laughs> that, that was uh, Robert Rogers, uh, which is source of my middle name. And uh, Robert Rogers is mentioned in there, uh, but uh, Robert Rogers was fighting for the wrong side, so we don't talk about that very much. <laughs> so that's rebels and redcoats from george Shear and hugh rankin uh, it was released in the mid 80s uh it is like i said a dense book filled with lots of information but it's still a good read because it's also good to see what people were thinking at the time and it's not just you know a boring recitation of facts and troop movements okay well now that we're all caught up in our history let's get the heck out of here shall <laughs> we let's go make some more <laughs> yeah right Thank you for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew hangs out on the Homebrewing subreddit and the Slack Homebrewing channel. You can find me uh, on the AHA forum uh, on Facebook. Look around. I'm out there somewhere. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or rant and rave, and we kind of like that best, you can email us at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And, of course, you can send us a text, shoot us a voicemail. Uh, you can try calling, but nobody's going to answer. Uh, our phone number is 626-765-1AL. That's 626-765-1AL. Boy, wouldn't it be funny if we actually answered sometime? I've been tempted. And you- <laughs> and don't forget you can always find us at experimentalbrew.com so until next time remember to always brew experimentally or brew wacky and we'll see you on the next episode of experimental brewing